Tim Mackey, who is one of the scholars in charge of the Bible Project, he was recently asked by one of his students, how do I become a better reader of the Bible? And do you know what his answer was? This is kind of surprising. He said, read the book of Genesis through 50 times. That's five zero. Read the book of Genesis 50 times. His logic is this, then you'll be able to see images and patterns that reoccur all throughout the Bible that you could not have imagined before. Now that's kind of a surprising answer, isn't it? We would think that he would say, oh, just read the whole thing over and over, or come up, he would have some other regimen for us uh, to do, but I'm convinced he's on to something with this. In fact, it's not just me. There is an online community right now of about a thousand people who are reading through the book of Genesis 50 times and discussing what they're learning along the way. Now, some of the, I've checked in on some of this stuff. I'm, I'm not a part of it per se, but I've checked in on some of these conversations, and it really is amazing the connections they're seeing. Uh, images that repeat in Genesis and all throughout the scriptures. It's truly a wonderful thing. It's a, it's a Bible study that's been elevated to a, a whole new level. And if you were alive today, I think the Apostle Peter might want to join in on this group. Because time and time again, both in his first and his second letter, Peter's made reference to the stories of Genesis. And each time, he's pointed to something beyond those stories. He's pointed to how those stories tell us about our own salvation. So, for instance, in 1 Peter, he describes Christ's victorious descent into death to announce our salvation against fallen angels, against the enemies of God. And then later, he connects baptism to Noah's salvation through the flood. Not suggesting, and he explicitly says, not that there's anything magical about the water that saves us, but in it, God somehow shows us and the watching world that he does save us. And in 2 Peter, now he's reminding us of three different scenes from Genesis. Three scenes of destruction and deliverance. And so this morning as a church, what we're going to be doing is looking at these first three groups that we read about and how God reveals His justice, His righteousness against a wicked world. But we also see two individuals to whom God extends lavish mercy. And finally, that's going to lead us to the one person in whom God shows both justice and mercy in His life. But before we get into this passage about rescue, and about righteousness this morning. Let's retrace our steps. Now last week, Peter laid it out for us really plain and simple. There will be false teachers in our midst today, and as there always have been, who claim to be Christians. They'll look like us, they'll sound like us, but they'll believe and live something entirely differently. Because they'll be believing in things and living out things that only help themselves. Because we discussed this last week, instead of uniting the church, these false teachers will find ways to divide it. And instead of confessing 
Christ as the only way to God, they'll deny Him. And finally, and instead of growing in holiness and humility, they will increase in their depravity. And so, worst of all, they will try to convince us to join them in living this way. To join them in living out every greedy and lustful desire that we have. But Peter warns us time and again, especially in this book, to not give in to their influence. Because while we don't see it yet, and while they definitely don't see it, condemnation and destruction is well on its way and in fact is just around the corner. And so he warns us away from that. And in turn, Peter tries to get us to see how this has always been the case. There's been false teachers and false prophets that live and propagate a certain thing and want people to get involved in it, and it always ends poorly for them. And so he gives us these three biblical examples from the book of Genesis. I think probably one of Peter's favorite books in the the whole of the Old Testament. He talks about these people, these different groups that like the false teachers of our day, live only for themselves and so end up utterly destroyed. But he also gives us two biblical examples of those who although when we read the full story of their life as presented in Scripture, they're just as selfish sometimes. They're just as wicked and evil and greedy as the people that are condemned. But in the end, the thing that separated them out is not that they were good people or they were better people, but they were people that trusted in God for their salvation and were delivered. And so it's my hope this morning that as a church, that as we think about this passage together, that we would see that neither selfishness nor self-righteousness will save us. That neither doing what we want to all the time and not an extreme uh, self-denial that where we pride ourselves on a religiosity, neither of those paths lead to salvation. But instead, our only hope will be built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. So let's look, beginning in in verse 4 of chapter 2, on these three negative examples that Peter gives us. So I'll just list them out in the beginning, and then we'll go through them one by one. First, we have these angels who sinned, as he writes, or these fallen angels. That's in verse 4. Secondly, in verse 5, we have the ancient world. This is the the pre-flood, ancient, long-gone world of Genesis chapter 6. And then finally, a little bit more modern, (laughs) by history standards, but not by our standards, We have the cities and the region of Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 6. And so these three stories have one thing in common. Yes, they do come from the book of Genesis and the early part of Genesis, for that matter. But more importantly, it's not that they come from the same part of Genesis, but they illustrate the same point, that God is just and He will not let unjust unjust people and unjust things rule the day in the end. And so that means he won't ignore evil behavior in any of his creatures. He won't let them get away or us get away with violating and manipulating each other and rebelling against his glory and goodness. Because God wants our ultimate good, he intervenes 
to put a stop to our ultimate evil. And so here we have three groups that should be all terrifying examples to us of what can become of us when we choose not to worship God but worship ourselves, when we choose not to live according to His wisdom but to live according to our own. So let's look at them. First, we have these fallen angels. I'm going to read this verse again. Uh, Peter writes in verse 4, For if God didn't spare the angels who sinned, but cast them into hell, and delivered them in chains of utter darkness to be kept for judgment. So let's pause right there and ask, what in the world is this talking about? Well, in Genesis 6, the Bible talks about the sons of God, referring to some supernatural beings. And they were these kind of mysterious spiritual beings that in the Bible and in in some subsequent Jewish teaching were somehow connected to the heavenly bodies, the stars and the planets. Their identities and their powers were aligned in some way that we just don't get any more explanation for than that. And that's pretty weird in our thinking, right? That there are spiritual beings that seem to have some connection with the, the, the nighttime sky. But that we see this throughout the Bible, and it's just mentioned in passing. And then the question is asked, well, what more can we find out about them? And, and honestly, if we're just looking at the Bible, really not much. The Bible seems to be disinterested and telling us anything more about the reality of these spiritual beings that have a mind and a will and a personality and some sense of limited power seems to be totally disinterested in telling us anything more than they exist and they have some serious but limited power. And we wonder why. I don't know about you, but I'm sometimes fascinated by these things. I read these things in Scripture and think, What must they look like? What do they do? What's the purpose? And we get that stuff throughout the Bible. But ultimately, all we can do is give a humble shrug because there's just so much we can never know about them. But you know, I was struck recently when I came across a medieval Christian teacher named Alcuin of York that was somewhere in England, I believe. And he tackled this exact subject in, in a book that he wrote about Genesis. So he, he writes about the creation of the world in Genesis 1. And a lot of times in the, in the ancient Christian commentaries and, and teachings, they would stop between Genesis 1 and 2 and say, well, let's talk about the creation of angels. And they would take other things from all over the Old Testament, some in the New, and try to build kind of a, um, a speculative creation story of the angels. But he doesn't do that. In fact, he discourages people from doing that. Because he was once asked, well, why don't you teach more about the creation and life of angels from Genesis? And other than it not being explicitly there, his answer is fascinating. He says, because there's no salvation for them. And the Bible is about our salvation, not theirs. The Bible is about our story and our life with God, not about theirs. So I found that such a Uh, amazing answer because mystery of mysteries he was right God's image is in us not them his salvation is for us not them even the angels more powerful than we could possibly imagine that have more terrifying authority over the elements of this world and beyond than we could ever grasp with our limited human minds they look on us 
in wonder because God's greatest love is for human beings. And the story of the Bible is about, we see in some sense, two falls from grace. There's the divine and and supernatural beings, perhaps even outside of time and space. And then there's human beings and history that fall away from God, and yet God's only interested in incarnating himself as one of us to save us from our sins. Because in creating human beings, God created an image of himself. Male and female, he created them. And so I think this kind of helps us understand why the Bible is kind of vague on, on uh, angels and demons and all these things, because ultimately, yes, they're interesting to us, but their, their story is not the story of salvation. And what God does for human beings in Jesus Christ is far more interesting than anything that we could speculate with angels. But I think this kind of helps us to have some more context about these angels who sin. So the story is this, uh, that these are called the sons of God, and they're these fallen, corrupted angels. And, And in some way that we don't understand, in Genesis 6, the Bible presents an account where these angels, through some supernatural means, it would seem, become physically entangled and intimate with human women. And there are children that are produced from this union. Again, we don't know any more details other than what's just said right there. But the Bible says that their offspring is what we call the Nephilim. Now this is a Hebrew word that is to this day, not been able to be translated, even by Jewish scholars. It's lost its meaning in history. But I think what that idea is getting at is that what we see, especially pop up in Genesis 10 and 11, where these, these human beings that seem to be inspired and empowered by a supernatural evil in, in such a way that they become powerful and violent political entities in the world they build kingdoms and idols unto themselves and they have a certain amount of human brilliance to them but they use it for evil purposes and i think paul picks up this idea in the new testament and connects these spiritual powers and human principalities so in other words even today the warning of scripture would be to watch out for these destructive forces in the world these seemingly larger-than-life entities and groups and bodies, whether it's governments or companies or militaries or technologies or philosophies and so on and so forth, these things are, I think, alike. they are akin to and like the Nephilim of Genesis 6, of the ancient world. The result of the, these fallen angels interfering and intermingling in human history is to create such an amalgamation of evil that human beings grow too powerful and they grow too violent and they try to build their towers of Babel and God has to stop them. So I think this is the problem with these beings. It's not that they're just kind of malevolently rebelling against God, but they empower and inspire human beings to come up with these these tremendous nations and powers that murder and attack and and pillage people and, 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 and dehumanize them, and God has to stop them in their tracks. And so 
at some point, perhaps again outside of our history books, outside of time and space, God dealt with some of these angels by imprisoning them in what the Bible calls hell. Now we talked about this in our Apostles' Creed series. That word can mean a lot of different things. Uh, The Greek word Tartarus or the Hebrew word Sheol can refer to just the place of the dead, like a holding place that we just, it's off limits to us. We just don't know about it any more than it is a place where these things are bound there until God will one day in the future deal with them in judgment for good and they will be a problem no more. And if there's one thing that we can take away from all this weird, mysterious stuff in this passage, it's that God won't let the worst, most violent evil get away with it forever. And may for a time, God's forbearance allows people, I think, time to repent and come back to Him. As we've been reading the Old Testament, especially these major prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel recently in our, 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 our Bible reading time together as a church, it's amazing that over generations, God is allowing these people to repent. He's condemning their sin, but saying, come back into the fold, repent and turn. And they just never seem to do it. I, I think God allows societies sometimes lifetimes, sometimes generations to repent of their sins. But eventually, if the outcry is strong enough, He will catch up to them. He will one day destroy everything demonic. That's one thing that we can get from this passage. That one day, all of these things will be bound and all of their power to stir us up, to hurt and manipulate and extort and kill each other will be locked away and done away with forever. That's a relief to us. But it's also a warning to, for us to not get involved in these, these things that are these larger-than-life groups that command our loyalty to this ideology or this group and demand um, not only loyalty to them, but demand us to oppose and hurt other people. We must reject that, Peter tells us, because God deals with that. But let's look at this second group that we read about, which Peter just calls the ancient world. Verse 5, he says, And if he didn't spare the ancient world, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, when he brought the flood of the world to, or he brought the flood on the world of the ungodly. So right after this passage in Genesis 6 about the sons of God and the Nephilim and all that stuff, we see a world that is totally embroiled in violence and destruction and a hatred of God, totally corrupted by these demonic influences. Everyone we read is violent and against God in all of their ways. And before these human beings have the power to come together and utterly destroy the entirety of creation, God decides He will intervene and deal with them first. In Mark 13, a gospel that we just preached through last year, and and it was written, we believe, under Peter's supervision as as a mentor of Mark, Jesus warns His followers that human violence and that ecological disasters will get so bad in this world that unless God intervened, even we, the church, would be deceived and destroyed. And so, what that reminds us of when we think of the flood account 
is this is what happens when God steps back and lets us do whatever we want and go according to our own wisdom. We bring such a violence and a pollution on this planet that God, in order to save humanity, to save his creation, he has to first let it be uncreated. He pulls back his sovereign hand and lets those the, the waters over which the Spirit hovered in Genesis 1 come crashing back down on the earth. Because what is better in the eyes of God is to uncreate the world rather than to let evil go unchecked. And Jesus says, even in the future, if God didn't cut the day short, we would end up in the same problems that these people did. And so, I think we underestimate our human ability to totally destroy our societies and our world. Our sin could get so bad and so out of control that if God just took a step back for a few generations, we would wipe each other out. Totally. This this planet would be unlivable. We'd bomb each other. We'd set our cities on fire. We would just destroy each other if God and His forbearance were removed from us and so we need to be reminded that God because of his loving and compassionate and holy sovereign intervention steps in to stop us just like he stopped the ancient world from utterly destroying ourselves and third and finally Peter talks about this group that we read about and we know also well Sodom and Gomorrah Peter writes in verse 6, he says this, And if he, that is God, reduced the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes and condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is coming to the ungodly. Dot, dot, dot. But you want to know something really incredible about the Sodom and Gomorrah story? Maybe something that we just don't really know all that well. Well, the Dead Sea region is where Sodom and Gomorrah used to be. And that region is described even in Genesis 13 when Lot and Abram come into the land that God has promised to Abraham and said, you know, this is going to be the land for your people and your future. When they look out over the land, Lot looks towards the Dead Sea and says, that land is beautiful and florid. And so I'm going to go be established there. Now we call it the Dead Sea for a good reason. Because that region is an arid, salty desert with no life in it there is nothing alive in the dead sea it's all dead so when lot was was seeing that and the the thing we see today are totally two different realities now this has caused some to speculate you know um people that are skeptical about the bible well maybe this is just kind of a made-up story it's mythological this is not real history but something happened in human history it would seem to make it this way Now, this is absolutely fascinating. I just learned about this maybe a few months ago, but in 2005, there was a massive 13-year geological study undertaken on the Dead Sea region by a large collective of totally secular, non-Christian geologists, archaeologists, and sociologists. They were just surveying the region. And what they deduced, this is unbelievable, they deduced that about 3,700 years ago, a massive meteor exploded over that region and it caused to rain down fragments of between 8,000 and 12,000 degree 
fireballs that decimated that area. I mean, just salt and iron and just ensuring that no life would grow anywhere in that region. And for about 700 years, that region was so desolate, not even scrubs could grow in it, and life just did not exist there at all. This is coming to us from a totally secular source. It's, it was in all it was New York Times, Forbes magazine. It's been on a bunch of science magazines. This is not. I'm not saying I got this from a Christian Facebook, you know, email chain or something where they just make up a story to fit it with the Bible. No, there is something that happened in human history where <laughs> this terrifying apocalyptic destruction of this total this whole region happened it's amazing to me genesis 19 the destruction of sodom and gomorrah and that region really happened in human history and scientists can point to what exactly happened now they don't believe why it happened but we know better see genesis tells us about a great outcry to god that came up from that region that was prosperous, that was rich, that was trading, that had a lot of, they had a lot of military power, they had a lot of money. They were a well-known region. And there was a great outcry that came up to God about how evil they really were behind the scenes. And you remember the story of Genesis well, but I was, I was rem- reminded when we just last week read through this passage in Ezekiel where God says exactly why he wiped out the region of Sodom and Gomorrah. And I'll read it to you. In Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 49 through 50, we read this. Now, the, this was the iniquity of Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, they had plenty of food and comfortable security, but they didn't support the poor and needy, they were haughty and did detestable acts before me. So I removed them when I saw this. This is striking. Because I know for us, we often think that God was angry with Sodom and Gomorrah just for their sexual depravity and violence, which is evil and wicked. We know that when these two angels came in to, to, to stay with Lot for the night, there was a mob that demanded that knocked on Locke's door and said, you better bring them out so we can have our way with them against their will and consent or we're going to kill you. That's, that's bad. That's an evil thing. But God also shows us that that was just one problem that Lot had. The other problem is that they were so fabulously wealthy and comfortable and they let their fellow citizens starve to death in the streets. Maranatha, listen to me. We live in a, in a great country in many ways. But we live in a country that is fabulously wealthy and has a lot that it could share. And I know this topic gets politicized and I'm not trying to get political and I'm not going to get partisan this morning. But do not let the lies of this nation deceive you that this land is all about all the money and stuff you can get from it all the selfishness that you can pursue 
That's the American dream, after all, isn't it? That you work hard and you get a lot of stuff and you live in a nice neighborhood and you have a large bank account and you keep anybody that's undesirable away from you. God gets angry when we hoard our stuff and dehumanize each other. When we look at each other as pieces of meat that can be played with in any lustful way, He is angry with that. And He's angry when... when, uh, when we just amass all this stuff and, and look down our nose at people that have to work really hard and, and still don't have a lot, he looks on us with disgust when we're both greedy for flesh and money. And evangelicals are really good about condemning the, the flesh part of it. We're always, we're rightfully so, against, um, uh, to put it mildly, to a, a, a adult content things that are dehumanizing that are that are flesh peddling that are all about getting whatever physical desire and sensation of using people in that way we're good about that but i fear so often evangelicals would say don't you lay a finger on my money we want our big churches our big programs our security systems, our nice bands, the lasers, the fog, all of it. We want our brands, our t-shirts. We want our good video systems. We want a a, a full-time security team that just keeps anybody off the property we don't want. And God hates that. He hates when we use each other's bodies whatever we weigh. And He hates when we use our resources to reward only us and to not help one another. Evangelicals need to hear that again. Because God does not abide our worship of money, our pride in our financial security, and being stingy in giving to people in need. He does not abide that. And we trick ourselves. Well, we don't sleep around. Well, we have these purity conferences for our teenagers. But we let our people become so greedy with their money they never give their time or their energy or their love to anybody that needs it. And God says no. See folks, the false teachers of Peter's day are, are warning, uh, he's warning us about are peddling the lies of the fallen angels and pagan communities and, and, uh, and everything that our world is, is so enamored with today about lust and about money. That's always that's the refrain throughout all of human history. You can do whatever you want physically and you can have whatever you want financially. Our fleshly and financial delights are the biggest idols that we have to overcome. And these communities or these these ancient the world, ancient Sodom and Gomorrah, these fallen angels, that's what they were all about. Christians today, goodness gracious, do not be misled by the false doctrines of Wall Street or the financial stock market or the 401k. God gives us resources so we can live. He promises that He'll give us what we need to live in the societies in which we live. But when we just keep that all to ourselves and load our pockets and sneer at people that don't have as much as us, He gets angry. And that's something evangelicals, I believe, and America especially, need to remember. Because Jesus tells us it's more blessed to give away 
than it is to receive. But Peter also gives us two positive examples here as we wind down. He gives us Noah and Lot. In verse 5, Noah is described as a preacher of righteousness. He's a man that spends his entire career uh, as, a, as an ark builder, also as a preacher. He is trying to dissuade his neighbors from the, the ways they're living, from their violence and extortion before God wipes out everything that they've ever known. And in verse 7 and 8, likewise, we have Lot. He's described as a man who's grieved by the immorality and the inhospitality of his city, something that torments and, and warps him and distorts him in his guts, we read about. But when God's ultimatum came to these men, repent or perish, they left their worlds behind. They left their money, they left their stuff, they left their homes, their comfort, their culture, and they trusted and followed in God, even when it meant that everything they ever knew was going to be destroyed. And the Lord rescued them for that. And He counted it to them, their obedience and following Him as, as righteousness. But here's the shocking truth about these people too. So often in the New Testament, we'll get these saintly characters. They'll talk about David and Noah and, and Samson and Lot. And we, maybe if we hadn't read the Old Testament recently, we'd say, oh yeah, those are good people. Then we read the Old Testament and think, who are they talking about? I, I don't see anything that remarkable in Lot's or, or Noah's life that makes them seem like they are just such moral exemplars. But that, I think, is the shocking truth about them. They were rescued and declared righteous, even though after that happened, both of them started to look like the world that they left behind. God flooded Noah's home. He burned down Lot's home. And they escaped just in the nick of time. And they both became alcoholics who had scandalous, immoral relationships with their own children. Maury Povich wouldn't even cover this. It's too salacious for him. I thought they were supposed to be righteous. But they look just like the false teacher of Peter's day that he's been condemning in verse 10a as those who follow polluting desires of the flesh and despise authority. So how are these two paragon of virtue, how are they any better than the people that were destroyed? And here's the scandalous reveal. They're not. They're not any better. They're just as bad even. But here comes the linchpin idea in verse 9. If the Lord is just to destroy wicked people, He's also merciful in delivering not very righteous ones too. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and how to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Now the, that term godly, the Lord applies to us very generously. Very generously. Because here's the big idea for us, church. If we're honest with ourselves, our lives don't look any morally superior to anybody in this passage. If we're really honest with ourselves. And if we believe that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says that your thought life is as real as your acted out life. What you think here, what you feel here, you might as well be doing it with your hands. Because they're one of the same. That's who you are on the inside. So if we can get honest about who we are here and here, 
we are no better and maybe even worse than some of the people we read about here. We're just as bad and selfish and greedy and maybe even as violent as they are. But God knows how to rescue us from our trials that would likewise destroy us. God knows how to save us when our marriages are on the rocks. He knows how to save us when our bank account is depleted. He knows how to save us when our jobs are absolutely miserable and our cars and our houses are breaking down. He knows how to uh, save us when our children and our family are angry at us and not talking to us, when our friends have abandoned us. He knows how to save us when our bodies are sick and broken. He knows how to save us when we're paralyzed by anxiety and depression. He knows how to save us when we're slaves to our own addictions, when we're bound by our own traumas. He knows how to save us when we are our own worst enemy. When we were at our absolute lowest, morally and maybe the world, how it kept us down too, when we didn't have a cent to our name and when we were at the most far we could possibly be from God, And when we now realize we really are the sinners the Bible describes us to be, right at that point, church, we read in the Scriptures that that is when Jesus loved us. When we could do nothing for Him. When we had no righteous bone in our body. When we didn't believe. When we were greedy. When we were immoral when we were selfish, when we were hateful, that is when Jesus loved us. When we were enemies of God and antagonists of all of His creation and filled with our selfishness and pride and hate, that's when Christ died to save us. At the end of all things, church, we have to confess that we are not righteous in and of ourselves. What a burden we place on our shoulders and the shoulders of other Christians when we expect them to be good and moral and righteous people so that they can be a part of a church community. What a terrible thing that we evangelicals have bought into that you have to have a nice coat or a skirt on and be clean and prim and proper and have a polite family. The children don't ever say an untoward word. The parents never curse under their breath. What a lie we've told ourselves that we have to be put together to come to God. When in reality, when we were at our worst, that's when God came to us. Jesus Christ was totally righteous. He was totally good, totally perfect. And yet, He came and lived and ate and fellowship with sinners. And because of His overflowing love, He went to a cross, a God-forsaken, literally, cross, so that all of our evil and all of God's justice for that evil would be absorbed by Jesus. And what comes pouring out of His side is nothing but the saving blood, the cleansing water, and love eternal for sinners. See, when we read a passage like this, about terrible people. I'm convinced that we're supposed to see them as a mirror. That we're supposed to see our own spiritually ugly reflection in them. And despair 
of ourselves, our religiosity, our self-righteousness, and instead be free to let the burdens and weights of self-fulfillment and, and self-aggrandizement, uh, uh, let all those things go so we can receive the free and external love of Jesus Christ. And so I don't want passages like this to be depressing to us. I want them to be freeing. That God sees us at our worst. And He punishes people that continue on to to hurt with with no sort of repentance that continue. God deals with that justly, but at the same time, Those of us that repent and say, I was wrong, I'm sorry. He says to us, I love you. So no matter what you face this week, Christian, put your trust in Jesus and His righteousness alone. And remember that He loved you at your worst and He'll rescue you always by His righteousness alone. Let's pray. Father, help us to beware of the deceptions of this world. Keep us from trusting in ourselves or our own situations. And instead, help us to trust in the righteousness of Jesus who saves us from our sins. For it's in His name that we now ask and pray. Amen.